Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Hi. <laughs> Good morning. Good afternoon. Good, good evening. And good middle of the night. Yes, it is. <laughs> so here we are uh, in our hotel room, still in Nashville. But we would love to recap our experience in Louisville. Yeah. I mean, it was packed, packed, packed with goodness. I mean, from the time we woke up, we would get up in the morning. They would have breakfast available for us. So we'd get up, go downstairs and grab something. And then lecture started at 9 a.m. And we didn't want to miss any of it. All of it was such great stuff. And it wasn't like they had breakout rooms and stuff. It was just everybody, about 100 and what people? I don't know. A little more, over than, 100. more than 100 people. Yeah, a little right? over 100 people. So it was intimate. You know, some of the conferences that you do, there are a lot of people. And then there are breakout rooms. And you don't really get to like get to know everybody. And in this situation, you really got to see and talk to and you know feel like it was a really a community which was really nice yeah let's back up for a second just in case some people don't know what we're talking about okay, let's back up so this past weekend <laughs> which will probably be two three weeks ago by the time this comes out <laughs> in louisville kentucky uh our friend nathan riley hosted a twins and breach conference mm -hmm. with some really great people actually in attendance, lovely, lovely people uh, from all over the country and from some foreign countries as well, uh, who came to either speak or to listen or to share. Uh, there was a lot of sharing going on. It wasn't just sitting there lecturing. It was give and take and interactions. And it was three and a half days long. And it was very social. And we did some bonding. And we felt strong as a group because obviously a lot of us are in our own community sort of isolated because we're the only ones offering breach and twin birthing. Or interested or advocating for it, you know? Yeah. And so you sometimes get ostracized for that. But here we are in a room of 100 and 120 people all geeking out, geeking out <laughs> right on birthing stuff and from all different walks of life and all different political aspects and all different economic aspects and some people uh you can have you know obviously had different ideas and we were able to share ideas in a mutually respectful room and you know led very well by nathan who mm -hmm. kept things really go, go smooth he's a smooth talker and he's he's got a lot of interesting stories and stories galore and we've talked on the podcast before that one of the best ways to learn and memorize and remember things is through stories not mm -hmm. through reading a textbook. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, um, so from the time we got up until, you know, then we would. <laughs> till, we, till the time we had three drinks and went to bed. Yeah. We, yeah. we would, they would have lectures and then, um, and then we would be served lunch during a lecture and then we did hands on and then we'd have more lectures and then we'd have dinner and then uh, Stu and I would um, go out to the little bar that was right outside the room that we were meeting at and and have a cocktail before bed and and just be like, meet me at the bar because everybody wanted to say hi and talk to us and was so, so lovely 
uh, we're going through some hug withdrawals because it's just he and I now, and we were getting like, I don't know, a hundred hugs a day. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just, it just accolades too. Yeah, and, and I was, we, I was returning them because some of these people I had never met before, but some of these people have been my history as well. And so to, to be with a lot of the, a lot of the midwives there who've been, I've communicated with on Instagram or through email to come up to say hello to me and tell me their story. And we, we talk about it and remember the conversations that we had or to run into Denny Hartung, who I hadn't seen in probably a decade. Who's a doctor who practices in Alaska. In Alaska. No, in Wisconsin. Sorry. <laughs> Why did I get in Alaska? I don't know. <laughs> a little, a little. Um... I think he trained in Alaska. This oh, way he was doing right. his military service. Oh, Alaska, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. So in uh, Wisconsin, in a small hospital there is doing breach deliveries. Yeah. yeah and, and many people from the Twin Cities, which is about, 80, I think, 80 miles away or so, they all go to Wisconsin to have their babies. Yeah. With Denny. And then there's, of course, famous Betty Ann Davis from, from Canada. And David and Rixa were there from Breach Without Borders. Mm-hmm. Gail Tully mm-hmm. was there from Spinning Babies. I know I'm going to leave somebody out Nicole here. Morales. Nicole Morales from the Breach there. Release person. And she's been on our podcast before. Emiliano Chavira. Chavira, our buddy and MFM doctor in Los Angeles who mm-hmm. thinks out of the box. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you. Yeah, Me? I'm, I'm sure we're missing Nathan? somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and no. lots of participants. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I learned a lot just from people coming up to me and talking to me. And I, and there were five uh, simulator sessions, um, and I was supposed to get a break in one or two of them. Yeah. <laughs> I did all five of them. Well, because they had four, three, three in uh, in upright, and yeah. only one in lithotomy, which position. was the one that you were teaching, right? Yeah, and you know, I posted, a, I posted some, or we different people posted videos about um you know the conference and stuff and and some I got some comment back that was like oh my god why do you guys have that that you know mannequin what are they called they're not mannequins simulators simulator models Sophie and her mom on her back and I said because we have to learn that the doctor learns everything on their back on with the mom on the back when when they switch to upright position, they don't get, know what to do. It gets a little confusing in your mind if you haven't practiced. And so, just like for us, you know, most women will probably want to be upright, but there are women from time to time who really do want to be on their back. Or you have a complication and you want to try, you know, one of the maneuvers from when she's on her back. So it's not, you know, just I think we have to be really careful. <laughs> When yeah. we when we see things on social media, to not just jump to conclusions and attack, but to try and ask questions from an open mind of, huh, why if if it's better upright for breach, why is that simulator on its back? You know, and and when we watch videos, this was one of the things I heard talked about at the conference. When we watch videos of other midwives and we see, you know them handling uh, a birth, you know, not to just jump in and assume that we know everything about what's happening and maybe critique what they're doing. So I think that that's just a way, you know, one of the things that came up um, and we'll get maybe a little deeper into it as we start to have this conversation about supporting one another. And I think that it's just really important that we lift each other up because we are fringe and, you know, the, community-based birthing and the way that we think about all of this is not the majority it's the minority and we need each other to make a bigger impact so just keep that in mind yeah when i was training 
at, uh, at Cedars, we rotated through LA County, USC, and the chairman of the department there was a guy named Dan Michelle. And it, it was well known that you did things the Dan Michelle way or you were booted out of the program. Mm-hmm. There was only one way to do things. The beauty of training at Cedars, on the, on the other hand, was that Cedars had 180 different attending physicians and you learned a lot of different things. So, you know, people who, who complain that say, um, why are you learning on the back? Well, there are times where women can't be on all fours. You know, we joke, we, you know, Betty Ann was giving me a hard time one time. I said, well, Betty Ann, she said, why don't you just turn on all fours? I said, because she has no legs. <laughs> okay. So, you know, but it's just, it's just an example of, of, of not always think, thinking things in one way. There are many different ways to approach these sorts of things. And we need to, we need to be open to them. And we need to be, as you said, respectful of the fact that not everybody does things the same way. Like there was a mantra that was going through the breach community a year or two ago, or maybe even longer was hands off the breach. Yeah. And then you can see what Rick's is showing her videos or David showing videos of people that are hands off the breach for way too long. Yeah. They got dogmatic about not stepping in when it was time to step in because they didn't want to invade the space or they wanted to let baby do its thing. But sometimes you have to read the room and know that it's not, it's time to put your hands on the breach. So it's the same thing here. Some women are pushing upright and they're just not pushing effectively or their arms are tired or they get exhausted or whatever else, or for whatever reason, um, something else happens and they need, they want to turn on their side. And then suddenly they're on their side. They're not having gravity anymore. Um, hanging in. And then the baby's coming out and you, and you need to know what to do. Mm-hmm. And it, I was really welcomed by everybody that was there. Some people didn't want to learn it and that's okay. Um, but t- to not teach it would be. No, I think it was, well, a, I think it was a really great thing that we did both. Okay. That horse is dead. <laughs> <laughs> so Poor horse. I wanted to sort of go through um, some of the talks and stuff and sort of Make us give a synopsis for you, all of the people who could not attend. Obviously, we can't replace being there. Yeah. And there's going to be another one, hopefully next year. I know we all enthusiastically supported it, but it's a lot of work for Nathan or whoever is going to support it and do it. So, I mean, the other you know, in past years, we've had a breach conference every four to six years. So the idea of having one every year, it would be great, but it's also a big, a big undertaking. Yeah. So, um. Nathan is going to have, they're going to edit and produce a video of all of the lectures. Oh, that's right. Stuff like that. And it's going to be for sale. So once it is released, we'll announce it again, but you can contact Nathan uh, Riley through um, Beloved Holistics. Holistics. Um, Or you can reach out to us and we'll forward it to you. Yeah. And just let him know that you're interested in, in that video. So on day one, we had Rixa. Rixa Freeze from um, Reach Without Borders. Reach Without Borders. Thank you very much. Did a, it's early here. Did a term. And she's only halfway through her call. I mean, maybe a quarter. Right. Okay. Um, she did um, term breach review and insights from video analysis regarding timing of intervention. That's too long a title. Yeah. Well, that's the title. She <laughs> that's, a, that's a Rixa title, right? Could you read that again? Because I actually went right over my head. What is it? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> you just yeah, stopped I, listening. I go down after the first <laughs> Title should not have more than three or four words. This is true, Rixa. Okay. Um, term breach review and insights from video analysis regarding timing of intervention, which is exactly what you were oh. just talking about. Right. When to step in. 
Do you remember? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I like no, she, she, the problem is, of course, she, we, we have these, all these long talks that we have, mm-hmm. and then we're given a limited time slot. And then because we love questions and stuff, we never, we never actually get to finish. Mm-hmm. So I think she only got through like three videos <laughs> or something in that period of time. But it just shows when babies are coming out and they're doing their, their cardinal movements of a breach. And sometimes they, they stop. One of the things I learned, which was surprising for me, was that Frank breach babies, when the arms are in a proper position, which is in front of them, um, 98% of them will rotate to direct ox, um, sacrum uh, anterior or tum to bum. Mm-hmm. What we would expect. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say it because I'm saying it on the podcast, but the Northwestern <laughs> residents came up with a lovely term for rotating in the other way, which is which is normal, which is tum to bum, the opposite of tum. And the same thing as tum to bum, especially mm-hmm. with in the lithotomy position, is tush to bush. <laughs> I like it. That's sacrum anterior. <laughs> but they're rotating tum to bum 98% of the time, whereas babies that are complete breach or incomplete breach will only rotate 60-some percent of the time, even when the hands are in the right place. So what that means is that you can give babies who are complete or incomplete a little more time to rotate, even though they're still sort of sacrum transverse, which with Franks, you probably would step in, but with completes, you might give them a little bit more time, but you keep an eye on the four things that are important to watch for a baby, which is the color of the baby, the tone of the baby, capillary filling of the baby, and then the two methods of the cord. Those are four things that you have with a breech baby delivery that you don't have with a vertex delivery because you can't see anything when the head's coming out first. But when the body's coming out first, it gives you lots of clues as to the baby's well-being. Far better than heart rate. Yeah, and um, and David Hayes talked about that a lot in his um, lecture about that he really actually prefers breech babies because you can see so much of what's happening with the baby before it completes its delivery. So I love that you learned things. Well, I learned a lot. I love that because, you know, I mean, we look at you as like an expert in this field and you are, but it just shows that as we exchange information and ideas, we can continue to learn, you know, throughout our you entire might, career. You might get to it, but both David a little bit and then Shavira a lot did a lot of things with numbers that were quite shocking, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, keep talking right. about that. Right. So a couple of things from Rixa's presentation that I wrote down, which one of them was what you talked about. So complete and incomplete could could rotate to the oblique, and that's still totally normal, which is great to know. Um, this may get a little technical for some some of you, but just just bear with us because we'll we'll – We'll try to brighten it up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. So I wanted you to talk about dropped feet versus footling. Okay. Okay. Because I had a doula friend recently who had um, a mom who really was going to decline a cesarean for her twins. Like she was going in there set with, she was going to decline it. Um, and then when they did the ultrasound, when she was in labor, they said that the baby was footling. Twin A. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I didn't want to, you know, say anything to the doula at the time because I knew it was going to be really hard for her to advocate. But later on, I talked to her about it and I said, I really doubt very seriously that those term twins were footling because that means that basically from a layman's perspective, they're basically their legs are extended. So they would be almost like standing up. Yes. Yes. So if you think about it visually, 
with two term babies inside of a uterus, that's virtually impossible. But a lot of people confuse when the feet are down that that's footling. So I just thought it would be cool well, for you to talk it, about it's that. Kind of a, it's kind of a, a lousy terminology because when you see a foot. Or feel a foot. you And then, and then there's a thing called footling. You think, okay, foot, footling. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. But that's not the case. Yeah. Uh, by definition, the way I define it and the way most people define it, there is some uh, controversy going on in the community. But the way I define it, a uh, footling breach is a baby's extended at the hip, extended at the knee. So as you said, standing up, which is almost impossible for a full-term fetus to do. There just isn't room for that. Yeah. So like a, a preemie, that would be... A preemie will do it and a second twin can do it because mm-hmm. once the first twin comes out, there's a, lot, there's a lot more room in there. But even if a second twin is footling, if you have the skills of breach extraction, it should not even be, a, it's a non-issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, as David likes to say, and I say it too, doing a, a second twin breach extraction is kind of fun. <laughs> for Not for the mom, but for us, no. it's kind of fun. And, and so when we hear that all the time, there was a case in Oregon where uh, Oregon mid. I said Oregon. <laughs> Shoot. It's Oregon, early. It's early. An Oregon midwife. Got chastised by their medic by their nursing board because a certified nurse midwife who sits on the board read the report where it said the foot was protruding or something, called it a footling breach, and footling breach is outside the scope of practice of a Oregonian midwife. Well, uh Hermine Hayes Klein got involved in that and asked me about it. We wrote a letter uh that saying explaining that. And of course the thing got eventually got thrown out, but the trauma that was caused to this midwife by having to go through a hearing because somebody doesn't understand breach delivery who sits on the mm-hmm. committee mm-hmm. is it is more than just annoying. Mm-hmm. Yes. But that's the case. So just because the foot was coming out, this, all it is is a complete breach or an incomplete breach. Whereas the, as mom's pushing and the baby's descend or even before mom starts pushing when the, when the mm-hmm. dilated far enough, the foot will fall through because nothing's supporting it anymore. Yeah. That's not, there's, that's not an emergency. That's not a problem. And it can be sticking out for for quite some time as, yeah. as the baby gradually descends further. Yeah. We actually, we were talking about stories earlier, right? And um, one of the midwives bravely was talking about a story where the leg was out for 12 hours. Yeah. And she was there. She wanted to talk about what happened so that she could learn more tools because what they ended up doing, what baby sounded great. Everybody was great. Just that's what was happening. And so they eventually transported her for a cesarean because it wasn't progressing. And, um, and the mom had a really, really traumatic cesarean. And so she wanted to learn from these experts, what is something else that I could have done? And um, uh, what uh, Betty Ann Davis showed her was fundal pressure. That fundal pressure can really work to, 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 check out and see what's happening with that baby. Maybe bring that baby down. If she's completely more. dilated. Right. Uh, if she's completely. If dilated. she's completely dilated, you could either use fundal pressure or you could just do a breach extraction. Yeah. But from a midway free perspective, unless we have to, like there's an emergency, I think that we would prefer to um, try to do some other maneuvers. I know. I, yeah. I, I We've talked about this, the medical doctor inside of me has been displaced, but it's still there. And so it comes out like, why am I going to wait another few hours when I could have the baby out in about 25 seconds? Yeah. So 
that it, it's a tough situation. And that's the thing that we juggle. That's the hands off the breach thing again. How long are you going to have hands off the breach? Are you going to use it as an as a doctrine, as an edict, or as a guideline? Mm-hmm. So it's more like more like guideline. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague. And her company, BirthFit, is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum. Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey, you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first you know beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages. So cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment. Um, So you can do it right out of your home. Um, And then of course, they have the prenatal program. They have a a basic 30-day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess you can kind of test out and see if you like their their vibe. And then they have a more extensive program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow. Yeah. I've I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She was a chiropractor in LA before, before they fled and moved to Texas. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, we, we support them wholeheartedly because this kind of a program is great for our, our clients and most of our listeners. Um, So you go to birthfit.com. That's B I R T H F I T.com. Use the code INSTINCTS1, all caps, INSTINCTS1, with a number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the BASICS prenatal program, or use code INSTINCTS2 to get a discount on the BASIC postpartum program. All right? So we love BirthFit. Uh, it's OB and midwife approved. That's right. And right. please support them. And congratulations on your pregnancy, Lindsay. Thanks for joining the team. Welcome to the Birthing Instincts neighborhood. So um, another thing that I wrote down that I thought was kind of just for me that I thought was kind of interesting as she was going through the data, Rixa, and she was talking about it. She was talking about uh, comparing when um, they were assisting with the delivery, like doing maneuvers and stuff like that. And when they weren't, they were comparing different statistics. And one of the things that she said was assisting did not include position changes that were given to the mom by the provider outside assisting correct i would consider suggesting a position change to a woman as being an interference or assisting well in some ways it's it is if it comes from the mom it's not right because the the assisting that we're concerned about is when you start touching the baby Mm -hmm. and it causes chain reaction and reflexes and hormonal secretions of the baby and changes everything so there is a there is a consensus among all of us that that if you do a maneuver on the baby not on the mom but a maneuver on the baby that and you restore the normal mechanism you shouldn't just stop there and say okay now the normal mechanism is back in place 
let's just go back to waiting. No, once you start a maneuver, you've changed everything, you should go ahead and finish the delivery. But I, I agree that taking a mom who's in the water and not progressing and getting her out of the water and putting her into a lunge uh, on all fours or something, that's really not the kind of maneuver we're talking about. So the baby isn't being touched. The baby's just dealing with mom's movements and that's mm-hmm. baby's been dealing with mom's movements for nine months. So. Yeah. Right. I guess I think that's what she meant. I'm getting what you're saying in specific to breach, but I, I just want to point out that from the way that I think about physiologic birth, when when a mom is coming from her own instincts about what is appropriate in this moment, that's very different than someone on the outside saying, telling her what to do. Yeah. Right. Got yeah, it. That's it. So I would consider that assisted as well. I just wanted to kind of different. It is assisted, but not in the way that, you that we're talking mind. about with breech birth and, yeah. and intervening. I get okay. it. Okay. Got it. So I just wanted to let you guys know, Rixa is looking for breech videos. Um, she is wanting to go more in depth with this analysis. Her data was really interesting. She had all of these graphs and stuff about like what the timing was of when they started and, and, how the babies did and all of that. So she's looking for more breach videos. She likes her graphs. I just want you to know. That. I, know I know. She loves. I've she collaborated geeks. with her a few times now and, and, and she's really good at that stuff. Yeah. She geeks yeah. out on Excel. So if you are a breach provider or if you are a mama who had a breach baby and you guys have a good video, a video that doesn't have interruptions in terms of like having the camera put down or someone stepping in front of the camera. Like it's a really good video of the delivery. Um, Rixa would really love to add it to her studies that she's doing. And she said, um, what should we do with this data? Understand the masterpiece of breech birth, which I loved. She, I mean, obviously she really loves what she's doing. It is nature doing what it's designed to do if, people could just stop and watch it i mean just even even watching a storm come in or something like that most people never look up they don't look at it mm-hmm. they don't see what the, the beauty yesterday we were we were at the farm and you said wow look at those butterflies mm-hmm. and then and and you just we were staring at them for a while mm-hmm. just watching butterflies do the butterfly thing mm-hmm. yeah so, but breech birth is remarkable to watch because you get to watch it unfold. That's what, as David likes to say, you do get to see it. So uh, it's different than head down because all you can see with the head, you can see the head rotating a little bit. That's kind of cool, but it's not the same thing as seeing all these maneuvers. And you and I, when when I was your student, um, we had two sets of twins 14 hours apart. Oh, I mean... The babies weren't 14 hours apart. No, the no. mom deliveries were 14 the, hours. The yeah. deliveries. Two, two different moms. Yeah. Right. Okay. 14 hours apart. Because I don't think I remember doing babies 14 no, hours No, but apart. we went from one birth to another. And it was, you know, one of the highlights of my studies. And you let me manage most of those deliveries. And the very first one um, was little toes coming out of her vagina. <laughs> And I still think it's the absolute cutest thing in the world. I love, love, love. I think that's why I want to move to to Oregon, Oregon, um, and uh, do these deliveries because I want to be able to see those little toes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. Oh my god! Okay. Oh, and just We're so people know, if the, if the foot's sticking out for a while, you can expect it to be black and blue. That's another thing. Yeah. That is normal. That these are these are normal things. Babies' butts get bruised in breech birth, just like babies' heads get bruised. 
in cephalic birth. They get caput on the head. You get you can get swelling and bruising on the baby's bottom or labia or scrotum. Yeah, sometimes pretty pretty gross. But that's but it but it gets better. It goes away. It goes away. Okay. <laughs> okay. So after that, we did simulation, and Nathan talked did a wellness session, which was a big part of this um, conference because it's a big part of Nathan's practice, which is talking about wellness and wellness products and um, really taking good care of ourselves. And that's something that I'm very passionate about. So I really appreciated um, that emphasis in this, in this time that we had together. Then we went into um, David's lecture. He was, um, David will also be presenting insights into fetal signs that might suggest that it's time to intervene. So similar to what, stuff, right? yeah, similar to what um, she was talking about. Well, this is the most important things I think you can learn with breach is, is you can go in with the idea that you can keep your hands off a breach. And if you know the cardinal movements of a breach and how they rotate, and you know what to watch for in color, tone, capillary filling in, in the cord, um, then you can know when to intervene. And that's what we're, we're teaching. And if you know the maneuvers to intervene, it's not hard. Breach delivery is not a scary thing. It's not scary. I I read stories every day. I read them to Bliss when she, I'm with her, but I, you know, I, I'll read them to anybody who will listen of letters that I get. Sometimes nobody. A coffee my girl. cat. My cat. Would you like to listen to this? My cat. No, but um, every day I get stories uh, from people who tell me how scared their doctors are. Yeah. About breech birth, VBAC too. Just any shoulder of these things. Oh well, yeah, shoulder dystocia. Shoulder dystocia will never be the same anymore. No. Because of what happened yeah. in Atlanta or near Atlanta. Okay, Not enough of that. Let's keep going because we're going to run out of time and we've got. A lot more to go. Okay. So one of the things you said, which uh, I do here, too. What was the first last, last time you thought you would hear me say we're going to run out of time? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so you said, why do we use we when we're talking to people? No. And I do the same thing. So like when you're counseling someone and you say, we believe, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm a sole provider. It's just me. Why yeah. do I still say we? Well, and we use it in a paper. Oh, uh-huh. You know, the paper that we're talking about that where it came up was that mm-hmm. I was describing the interlocked heads paper that mm-hmm. I wrote. Mm-hmm. And it says, uh, we did this and we did that. And we thought this was probably. And it's like I, I look up at the audience and go, Rick's is sitting right there. And I mean, it was it was just it was just me. Yeah, I know. But it's the it's the um, it's the publication. We. I do the same thing. Yeah, it's an odd thing. So you said something about the cord. You used a, a word, tumescence. Mm-hmm. Can you say what that is? Because we learned a lot about cords. Yeah, Rick Sato taught us something really interesting about cords and how cords, when they're robust and they've got a lot of blood flow, then they tend to coil. There's something to do with the tumescence, which is the fluid and stuff in the warden's jelly that keeps the cord. Everybody's protected. Yeah, everybody who's done birth has seen a really healthy looking cord. Yeah. But after that baby's out, and the or what, or even before it's out with breach, you get to see the cord with right. head down babies. You don't get to see it till they're out. But right. but you see the cord, and eventually what happens is it begins to uncoil, and then it begins to thin out, and the and then it begins to turn whitish. Yeah, from, from that this deep, deep blue, purple, purple, blue, yeah, yeah color, mm-hmm. and it turns whitish. That's a sign. what she's talking about. Yeah, yeah, and it's a sign that the baby is starting to. Well, there's no perfusion get into a, p- a place where it's going to be compromised. She said, it's not immediate, but it's one of those signs that you should start watching for. And you have a few minutes from the time that you see that cord starting to change where 
if the if things aren't progressing, that would be one of the times that you wouldn't want to just continue to have hands off breach. Yeah, that's a sign. Just like when we talk about shoulder dystocia, um, where the you know the head is turtling or you're seeing that change in color, that's one of your signs that you have to step in with breach. It's the same thing. It's going to progress normally unless. It's not. And those are the times where we're trained to be able to step in. So somebody might ask what's what's capillary filling, they might ask also. Mm -hmm. Classic example, if you ever watch a breech birth in in over a tight perineum, you'll see that the skin that comes out is very, very white. And as it moves away from the perineum a little bit further down, it it suddenly becomes purple again Mm -hmm. or pink or or blue or whatever. Mm -hmm. That means that it's perfusing. And if you ever have a sunburn and you push on the sunburn and you let go, it'll be white, and then suddenly it'll be pink again. That That's because your heart is beating. <laughs> that's a good thing. <laughs> and you're perfusing. And it's the same sort of thing. It's just another sign that you can use. And another great sign, of course, is tone. When babies are doing their tummy crunches, when babies are kicking, when their feet are moving, or if you're even not, not sure and you touch the baby's foot and it has a little reflex, it pulls itself back a little bit, um, that tells good. you the baby's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's a good sign. Yeah. Okay. Okay, um, so then um, you were presenting on your data from the paper. Yes. So I don't have to talk about that. You can talk about well, that because you're here. We finally reached a point where our paper has now been approved for publication. We found a couple of little errors in it when I was presenting it, so we're going to correct those. And then apparently there's a new paper that just came out from the Manistats on home twin birthing. So I, I saw it yesterday. This is even after the conference. I saw it yesterday. I sent it to Rixa because Rixa has access to it. She's going to go look it over. And we might even add some of the references to that into our paper. So soon it will be coming out. So we'll do a whole podcast on that once it's actually published. Mm-hmm. But well, we just looked at my twin data. And you know, we had 100 sets of twins. And 31 of them uh, went into preterm or didn't go into preterm labor, but had to ha- be transferred antepartum which is about a third. And that seems fairly typical. So we ended up with 69 women that went into labor. And of the 69 women that went into labor, six had a C-section. So we had a C-section rate of 8.7% and a success rate of 91.3% in our in our vaginal deliveries. There were eight transports to the hospital. Two of the eight ended up having vaginal deliveries and six had C-sections. And so it was there were clear there was a clear difference again with multips versus primips, very similar to my breach paper. The success rate in multips was 98%. Mm-hmm. We had 47 out of 48 multips deliver vaginally at home. And we had 14 out of 21 uh, or 67% of primips deliver at home. And two of the transports were primips. So we had an overall success rate of primips of 74.6%. So three out of four primips delivered vaginally. And 98 out of 100 multips delivered vaginally. And yet, in more than, in, in about half of these women, at least one of the twins was in breach presentation. Right? We had 31 mothers with at least one twin in breach, and four of those mothers had breach breach twins. So we had a total of 35 um, twins that were breach. In the regular world, Pretty much every single one of those women would have had a cesarean section because either twin A or twin B or both were breech. In our, we've had an 88 point something percent success rate when we had at least one twin in the breech position in our paper. And that's because of, of confidence and, and breech skills. 
and proper selection of of moms who are going in there. We're not talking about preemies. We're not talking about babies with anomalies. We're not talking about severe preeclamptics or placental abruptions or that sort of thing. So we had an 88.4% success rate. So one of the biggest takeaways for me was about the idea that if a mom finds out she's having twins at 12 weeks and her doctor is not comfortable with breech delivery of any kind, and we know that at least half of those moms will have at least one baby that's breech. That doctor is not an expert in twin birthing, and that doctor should actually say to her, I'm not an expert in twin birthing, mm-hmm. but they don't. Yeah. And I think you should go see somebody who's comfortable with a breech twist because you got a 50% chance of at least one twin having a breech, but they don't. They groom them for cesarean section. And this is one of the, my big issues. And Rixa did not mince, mince words about that. Yeah. Um, she calls it the shrug effect. We've got evidence that supports it, uh, doing breech vaginal twins, and uh, they just ignore it because they don't want to. They don't. They don't want to deal with it. Um, so that's that was the data in a nutshell. And then also we talked. Uh, I I preface it by talking a little bit about high risk, yeah, um, stuff. And so I just have this slide here that I that I I'm going to read off of. Just well, read. yeah, as you're finding that, I wanted to say that that's the reason why we do twins and breaches together because in order to be somebody who can serve twin mamas, you have to also be someone who knows how to do breach. And so that's why they oftentimes will be put together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe we've done this on the podcast before, but just an example is like the VBAC example where the risk of a scar separating is about one in 200 and the risk of a baby suffering a serious injury. And I mean, serious from that is about one in six. So the actual risk of a VBAC leading to a really bad outcome is one in six times one in 200 or one in 1200 or something greater than that. So one in 1200 is considered high risk in the doctor's population. Everybody's VBAC or you can't do VBAC or our hospital's banning VBAC or you have to have an epidural and you have to be in the hospital and have to be monitored the whole time because it's such a high risk. But it's the same risk as a woman who's 25 having a uh, a Down syndrome baby, right? Mm-mm. Baby with. Baby with Down syndrome. Okay. So baby with Down syndrome. I keep trying to get that right. I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm working on that. Good. Uh, and no one would say to a 25-year-old woman in general, uh, you know, you have a risk of genetics disorder. That's not something we say to 25-year-olds. Mm-hmm. But even more so is the example I give of a 40-year-old male with a blood pressure of 128 over 76, cholesterol of 190. HDL cholesterol in the mid-upper range of 50, no meds, no diabetes, non-smoker, that man has a 10-year risk of heart disease or stroke of 1 in 100. Now, nobody would think that that 40-year-old has would ever tell him that he's at risk for a stroke or heart disease, and yet it's 12 times higher yeah. than the risk of a bad outcome from a VBAC. So that sort of thing. So, so discriminated against. What is that? Yeah. And then the question is, is it high risk to label a woman high risk? Because it, and I, I believe yes. it is because it creates, immediately creates anxiety, changes the whole chemistry of the pregnancy. Yes. And that's a good question. So the question, I mean, I have a lot more on this and maybe someday we'll go deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to find high risk, by the way, they will. And I don't know that any woman actually makes it through the medical model without being openly labeled as having risk factors. I know, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, whether it's large baby, small baby, too much fluid, too little fluid, you're too old, too young, your placenta is uh, calcified, 
you're you're got a high BMI, um, that all that stuff. They're they're throwing things at you constantly to get put put things on the problem list. And when and I don't know that there's a single mother that makes it through the medical model without being labeled. So I asked myself many times, you know, why do doctors do this? And then I thought about it, and it came to me while I was prepping for this talk, a new a new sort of insight, and that is that um, maybe to many of our hospital-based colleagues, it is simply the unpredictability of nature's risks that differentiates from the risks they prefer and find acceptable. It's not really an actual number because it, we've, we've proven that it's not a number because mm-hmm. one in 1,200 is high risk, but something that's one in 200 may not be high risk to them. So it really is which risk that they don't like. That's the issue. Yeah. And not so much what the actual number is. Confirmation bias. Yeah. And they, yeah. And they, and they risk that they cause by their interventions or by not accepting nature's risks is fine for them. Even if that risk is actually higher. Yeah. In a number in by numbers, than <laughs> the risk they're trying to avoid. So all their interventions lead to a C-section rate of 31%. That's okay. That's okay because we 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 avoided that one in twelve hundred risk of a of a serious outcome with a V-back rupture or the the one extra per thousand um, neonatal death that might occur if we did all, a thousand vaginal breach deliveries versus a thousand head down vaginal deliveries. We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys? Your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned the prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family. You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush. You recognized it? Of course not. <laughs> no. Really impressed. No, but the midwife I was with recognized it right away. Um, 70% of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family, kids, pregnant, and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our followers. Yeah, so go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support, collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, for a lot of us to be taking, especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor. And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended by over three thousand women health experts, just like us. And I was going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I stole your. You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com. Just spell it out and use the code birthing instincts to get 20% off your first order. Thisisneeded.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm-hmm. just uh, use the code word birthing instincts at thisisneeded.com. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. Yeah. Right. I think, I don't know if you said this. I think you did. Said fear trumps evidence. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fear trumps evidence. And a higher chance of something happening does not equate to high risk. Right. 
that is a really important point. Mm -hmm. Just because something has, you know, and that gets into the whole argument of relative risk versus actual risk, which we've done many times. Don't get into that. But a higher chance of something happening doesn't make it high risk. If you're 35 and you have a slightly higher rate of having a genetic abnormality, does that make you high risk? No. And as, and as, and as what Dr. Javira said, which we all know, but we don't think of it, he put it in words very succinctly. He said, if there's a risk of 20, a 20% risk of something, that doesn't apply to you. Right. You have either a 0% risk or 100% risk. Right. 20% applies to a population base. And so we we I think I think one of the things that has happened with our education system, among many bad things that happened, is they've not taught statistics and math anymore. And people don't know how to interpret that. Mm-hmm. That if something happens 20% of the time, well, that, that means it could, you know, it could happen. No, it's either zero or it's more likely to be zero by far than it is to be a hundred percent. Right. And you know, it statistics are averages, right? It's generalization that's when as an individual, you you want your provider to treat you as an individual. <laughs> to, and nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody can tell you what the outcome is going to be. We can only tell you what has happened in other people. So that you know, right. that's that's how you have to individualize caring for people. And what the the bottom line of the twin paper presentation. I have questions, by the way. Oh, okay. okay. Well, all right. So we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is is that. Uh, twin vaginal delivery is, is really quite reasonable and anybody who's scared of it is not somebody that should be your physician. Yes, exactly. I love that. So you talked about taps and I wasn't that familiar with taps. Okay. So can you say something about taps? Yeah, it's twin arterial perfusion syndrome. It's a rarer thing. And what it is, is that TTTS, which most people understand is a sharing of, of blood vessels between uh, chorionic diamniotic twins, or it could be model, or it could be model model twins too, mm-hmm. um, where it can be very very serious. It usually happens somewhere between fifteen to twenty two weeks. It begins, and it can cause both fetuses to eventually die. We have this miraculous surgery now when you pick it up, and you and you know we had it happen four times in our paper, mm-hmm. and all four of those women underwent uh, late in laser surgery. And all eight of those babies made it to made it to a viable yeah. period of time, somewhere between twenty nine and thirty, which is amazing. Thirty three and a half weeks. Yeah. So most of the, in older days, those babies would usually die. Well, TAPS is a much is a communication of vessels, but much smaller vessels, mm-hmm. and usually doesn't begin to show itself till like after twenty six weeks, whereas TTTS is before. Mm-hmm. And it's there's there's no associated growth restriction. There's no associated anomalies. There's no associated preterm labor with it. It's just a weird thing where one baby gets overperfused and the other baby gets underperfused. So generally, you don't find out about it until they're born, and one baby comes out looking very cherubic and red, mm-hmm. and the other one comes out looking quite pale. Mm-hmm. It can be picked up. So that pale baby is basically anemic. dealing with anemia. Anemia, yeah. And the other baby is a little bit maybe polycythemic, which not as I mean, there's no more. Yeah. more it, they're going to do fine risk, if you, you yeah. keep them hydrated and. And uh, maybe slightly more likely to be jaundiced than the other one. Mm-hmm. And the other one is potentially not always, but r- rarely would could need a transfusion. Mm-hmm. But they generally don't get into fetal distress. They don't have anything. So it's just one of those interesting things. The problem, of course, gets back to our, our, our podcast about color Doppler flow. 
that's when because when you have mono die twins well they're going to be looking for it and looking for it and looking mm-hmm. for it and looking for it and it's like okay you're looking for it now what mm-hmm. yeah what are you going to do what are you going to do differently yeah yeah well we're going to scare the shit out of you and we're going to induce you early that's what they're gonna do. <laughs> that's exactly what they're going to do and there's there's very little need for that yeah and so those of you who listen to the podcast often know that I am uh, somebody who, you know, probably leans towards less uh, testing um, and would absolutely 100% support somebody that wanted to do uh, little to no testing because I believe that that's your right. But it's very interesting with twins, you know, you start to think about some of these things like TTTS. Well, they're right? more common. And, they're and, more common than the things that happen to singletons. And so... Testing, especially in mono dye twins, is certainly appropriate. But you have to, you have to, do you have to do ultrasounds early to figure out the chronicity in order to know yep. it, what kind of twin they are too? Because right. if you just did it old old school and didn't, you know, we knew that you had two babies because you measured your fundus measured high, and you know, then we started to treat you as if you had two. There are some things that are very serious that could happen that a midwife would not necessarily be able to pick up without ultrasound technology yeah again i i I think that that's true at least from my perspective that's true i i don't want to belittle the talents of midwives and being able to tell when somebody feels like the uterus is getting really tense and maybe one baby has poly and uh, and they have really good hands they can feel the other baby's not so it really doesn't have any a lot ability about it at all Mm -hmm. but yes Mm -hmm. these are ultrasound diagnosis and in today's modern era when over testing is rampant this is probably a, these are these tests are probably indicated yeah, I mean, they I are, mean, they're not just, probably they're indicated something right. to think about right. it, on someone who doesn't want a lot of intervention especially now that we have treatment for it in in days gone by where you there was nothing you could do for it anyway mm-hmm. okay yeah you just let nature do its thing yeah but now if you catch ttts early when it gets to a certain level because there's protocols for this, then they can intervene and they can do the surgery and there are great centers around the world doing it. And they're actually coming up hopefully with a a non-invasive way of doing it where they can do it with focused ultrasound. Yeah. So I just, again, for the midwives who are taking care of twins for TTTS, you would be able to figure it out sometime somewhere between 14 and 16 weeks. Is that what you said? That's when you would start to surveil. It could happen at any time in the pregnancy. Yeah. But if it hasn't happened by 28 weeks, I even asked the audience, I said, has anybody seen TTTS start? If they don't have it by 28 weeks, has it ever seen it afterwards? And, no, and yeah. no, none of the, even Chavira, who's MFM, said, no, he hasn't yeah. seen that. So then you would um, start at 14 to 16 weeks, and it would be every two weeks until 28 weeks, and then you could feel like... Then you could start to could, space things out and yeah. treat them more like die-die twins, Great. right? Awesome. I would. The medical model won't. Right. I'm talking about, I'm giving midwives some perspective, right. those that would like to. And once die, die twins make it to term, twins. I found no difference. The paper found no difference in success rates, outcomes, delayed cord clamping or anything from die, die twins. If mono die twins make it to term, the mm-hmm. likelihood of an ad. Now, the other thing about our paper, of course, and we're very careful to say this is our numbers are not powered enough for rare events. Because I mean, there's we, not enough. Yeah, there's not enough people and and oh that was an interesting thing about the uh, about the whole conference was we talked about the quality of evidence and talked about the best evidence is randomized controlled double-blinded trials or just randomized controlled trials and we've all pretty much in agreement that those will never happen ever again in 
our field mm -hmm. because there'll be ethics people that come in and they'll be they'll say you can't do that it's not ethical to do to give person one person this sort of thing care and this person this sort of care so you're never going to you're never going to be able to prove a counterfactual people are going to say it's dangerous to do this we need a study to tell it's safe but that study will never get done right right and you know if those terms are confusing to you that he's talking about with studies confusing to me too um i asked actually i asked dr shavira to come onto the podcast because i've been wanting to do an episode for a while about breaking down how to read a study what are the different kinds of studies and and we it's going to be dense so it's for those of you who really are interested in understanding more about studies, since we're in a culture where everybody's evidence-based and where are the studies and show me the studies, you know, you it's really important that you know how to read a study and look at it critically. So he's going to come on and do that in the future. Um, yeah, he, his presentation was really good about telling you that, that, that when you look at predictive value and when you look at... Um, certain things about studies they really they really they the they really don't tell you much because mm -hmm. of sensitivity and specificity if the specificity isn't good it's like you're gonna you're gonna i think this might have been david but you're gonna detect two cases but you're gonna have two thousand false cases mm -hmm. in order to detect two cases right right it's crazy yeah so let's go back to david hayes's topic what he talked about was um why are we using fetal heart tones which was really interesting. He went into the history, yep. right? And even like talked about like the different devices and stuff that were used. And I already had uh, listened to uh, the midwife cauldrons episode having to do with fetal heart tones. And so I knew that the history of doing that was to determine whether or not um, the baby was alive. Mm -hmm. That was why we started to listen to um, with devices like Pennard's horn. This is way back before mm -hmm. we had any, any ultrasounds or anything like that. So, um, and it was very, I, I really enjoyed his lecture because he talked about what happened in 1968, which is all the things that happened. In <laughs> right. Which is when, um, they released, um, electric fetal monitors Yes, was in 1968, but he also talked about the history of the you Chicago know, convention, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King. Music. Um, he talked about music. music right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which which got us going because which was great. Yeah. You know? So what else do you want to say about, about that? Well, he talked about the the uselessness of fetal monitoring um and how it hasn't proven anything. And I, I might have read this on the podcast. You know, I, I talk about this at the at the um at my reteach breach conferences. So I can never remember who I've spoken to about this and not, and whether yeah. it's been on the podcast or not. Yeah. But there was a uh, article uh, in the Green Journal from last year, which the Green Journal is ACOG's journal. So it's like the number one journal of in American obstetrics, medical obstetrics. And it's called Category 2 Interpartum Fetal Heart Rate Patterns Unassociated with Recognized Sentinel Events, Castles in the Air. I know it's a complicated title. It's by Steve Clark. Steve Clark is uh, I, I respect him a lot. He was a fellow at County when I was a resident, so sort of followed his career a lot. And he says this, and this was published in the Green Journal, so take it for the fact that it, that the Green Journal published it, so that's Clark has a lot of gravitas. But he said this about continuous fetal monitoring. The evolution of continuous electronic fetal heart rate monitoring has presented the obstetrician with a critical clinical conundrum. 
Basic science observations suggest that such monitoring might be associated with improved long-term neurologic outcomes. Yet, after a half century of use and millions of cesarean deliveries based on fetal heart rate monitoring, evidence for such improvement remains absent. Obstetricians need to realize that we are unique among medical specialties in our willingness to perform hundreds of thousands of major operative procedures each year, not only without any evidence of benefit, but with strong evidence of non-benefit. Mm-hmm. And that's what you were talking about earlier, that even though the statistics are not showing, supporting this, the it continues on. Yeah. Continues you know, if, if, it went, if it continued on and nobody was getting hurt, Mm-hmm. Okay, well, they're, they're just idiots. But this is worse than that. Mm-hmm. Because the, the evidence is mounting that fetal heart rate monitoring has done nothing for what it said it was going to do. Again, stage one thinking. We're going to prevent interpartum death. All right? Well, yeah, maybe did that a little bit. And then we're going to branch it out. It's got the, the, the mission creep, like we talked about with color flow Doppler, mm-hmm. where we'll, Every hospital and every laboring woman is going to have to wear these belts. And we're going to catch intrapartum hypoxia and prevent cerebral palsy. And all we've done is section millions of women with no decrease in the rate of cerebral palsy or hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Mm-hmm. So this was wrong to do. It should never have been done. It should certainly not continue to be done. And yet, no woman with a breech or twin labor in a hospital or a VBAC, unless they argue for it in detail, is, is going to be allowed to, to not be monitored while they're in labor. Right. 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 Element's a tasty electrolyte drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and, and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the... BS, just like us. It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box. Yeah, well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors. Yeah. Watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite. Mango chili. Lemon and chocolate raspberry. Lemon course. habanero. Lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a, it's a spicy chili. Okay. Yeah. There you go. You know, the other day I was at a very long birth and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah. And, it, com- and it comes in a little packet so that you, you don't have any waste. Right. Like Great. throwing bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element, that's drink lmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, and you get a free sample pack with any order. Great. Thanks, Element. Thank you. And he talked about a study that came out right before they released that. Um, the Hewlett Packard released the electronic fetal monitor. Yeah. And it the study said. Um, naivete and wishful thinking inspired our hope for a simple rule of estimating a fetal distress. And that was the conclusion of this study that was done, which basically says like, yeah, we were hoping that this would give us more information of how to do better, but it didn't. 
And then they did it anyway. Then it was released and it just became like wildfire. So, you well, for know, people that don't, confirmation for people that don't remember sure. history, one of the most powerful companies in the world in the 1960s was Hewitt Packard. Mm-hmm. Now it's GE and Amazon and, you know, Apple. Google and Apple and those, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Microsoft, those companies. But Hewitt Packard was a very powerful company. And they did, in those days, what GE did during the Obamacare stuff. GE lobbied, and 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 I can't remember the guy's name. Jeffrey something was the CEO, was was a friends with the Obamas, and was at the White House many many times. He lobbied that in Obamacare that they would they would mandate electronic medical records. Who makes the software for electronic medical records? A lot of companies do, but one of who one of the main ones, GE. Mm-hmm. Does. Did, was there any evidence ever done that showed that electronic medical records improves outcomes? Yeah. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. <laughs> but it, no one knew. Mm-hmm. But we're going to do it anyway mm-hmm. because there's a lot of money in it for GE. Mm-hmm. And we can track you better. That's part of it, too. It's because now everybody's records are electronic. And if you think that's safe, okay. <laughs> Okay. So one of the things that you mentioned when we were kind of talking about um, the conference at generally is that it was sort of a dialogue. So even though somebody was presenting, you know, Nicole Morales and Gail Tully and, and they weren't presenting, but they were experts in, in a different kind of perspective. So people would kind of interject these pearls of wisdom that weren't necessarily. Oh, they, came, they came from all, all every, every table there had, really smart people there just they weren't well known yet they will be yeah. they will be yeah all the different sarahs that are out there just, <laughs> there are a lot of sarahs there um there's you know but there there was the uh Layla's and the emily's and the and the raquel's and the, just speaking out and the angels and i i wish i knew everybody else's name speaking out saying these really really bright things and then mm-hmm. and then it would bring in um Great conversation, great yeah. questions. We even had the panels that they, they sometimes the panel some of the panels were were not great, but but overall the panels would start out, but then really all it was was q and a Q&A session mm-hmm. and every I think everybody gets stuff out of hearing other people's questions because yeah. you probably have those questions yourself. you just don't want to ask them sometimes and sometimes it's like, oh gosh, I never thought of that. That's such an interesting perspective, you know, whether it's because um, you know, of low income or geographical or ethnic or cultural, you know, there's like different things that people would, would ask about. Yeah. But um, we talked about common sense suggestions for starting out. So if you're a new provider and you're thinking that you want to offer breaches and twins to your community, yeah. um, obviously you need to learn the skills <laughs> and take the trainings, but, um, but you what were some of the things do you remember that they talked yeah. about? That well, yeah, I mean, I, I had them too with the twin with the twin presentation as well. Mm-hmm. Um, stay within your scope of practice, whatever you're comfortable with. Get the training. So for that, every that was redundant for everyone that was there because they were getting the training. Yeah, but I think when you say um, a scope of practice is obviously obvious, but when you say do what you feel comfortable with. When you first start out doing something like this, especially if you're the only one in your community, it is not going to feel comfortable. When you first get your license and you go to a birth and there is not anybody and you're it, 
it is not comfortable. You're going to have to stretch yourself, but maybe there's someone in the community that you can bring with you. That's my point. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, that I cut you off. Um, but also, you know, um, Rixa and David offer a situation where I don't know if you, how it works out, but like that they can be there with you virtually to, you know, walk, you know, support I, you. I've done that. I've, I've done Great. that. And so is Chavira. Yeah. So right. that might be something that's helpful. But um, so starting out, they were saying maybe starting out with multips. Right. Number that, <laughs> that again, the primips need us really badly, but the success rate with multips is so much greater. Well, it's, it's greater. Um, and the labors are easier and to build your confidence and your repertoire and your case list and stuff that, of confidence. Yeah. If you can start out with the multips, if you're going to, and the primips need you and it's hard to turn them away, but if you're going to have a primip, then you might want to bring somebody on with a little more experience, a little mentorship, whether it's virtual or there's another midwife in your community or a traveling midwife, or, you know, I happen to be driving by in the RV and, and stop like uncle Bob, like that happened a couple of times last year. And where, I, you know, I can just, not just me, but people, a mentorship type thing. But you want to take the ones that are easy. And then, of course, you want to follow the simple guidelines that mothers and babies are healthy, that they don't develop some sort of medical problem, that uh, labor starts spontaneously, and that uh, obviously your clients have the right mindset. You don't want to take people at last minute because they're breached who are expecting to have a vaginal head down birth in the hospital with an epidural at two centimeters and didn't want any, you know, didn't care about anything. And all of a sudden she's stuck with a breach and they're telling her she has a C-section. Now she's looking for an alternative and she wants to come to home birth. And sometimes those women are not necessarily, and, and I think all midwives know what I'm talking about. If they don't have the right mindset for home birth, it's not necessarily going to go well because mm-hmm. they have to be, feel safe. They have to feel trust in their system. And, and there's a lot, of, when there's anxiety, there's always potential for problems. Yeah, from the family, you mean, or both, or just even inside the mom, mm-hmm. right, right. So yeah, so those, I mean, it's simple, it's simple stuff. I then you can branch out. You could branch out with twins. You want to take the the die die twins. You really don't want to take mono die twins, partly because mono die twins require much closer monitoring, and if the monitoring is going to be done by generally an MFM, and the MFM is going to be, unless you have a really good one in your community, it's going to probably be planting seeds of fear and doubt. And if they ever find out that you're thinking about having an out of hospital birth, they're going to plant more seeds of fear and doubt. And so when you have a mono die set of twins, they need to go see a specialist outside of your control for a really long period of time. And that makes it a little bit harder. So, but once you feel that get the confidence, then you can take on the prime ips and the mono die twins who don't develop uh, any sort of TTTS issues. Okay. Great. Um, take a breath. There's a lot of info here. I'm looking at your notes and there's just a lot. of. (laughs) So, um, Betty Ann Davis did, um, it in here, it said that she was going to talk to us about, um, five signs of dystocia, but I felt like more of her lecture was really about fear. Yeah. Yeah. And she said that this is a, which is one one cause of dystocia, (laughs) (laughs) not five, but, um, it's one of her main focuses of, of study right now is how fear influences um, the kind of care that people get and why, you know, she's feeling frustrated. She's in Canada and it's um, 
socialized medicine. Is that what you would call it? Yeah, that's the term that we could, you could use. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, they have universal health care, right? Yeah, that's yeah. If, if yeah. you're a Canadian citizen, you have health care. Yeah. Well, they have universal insurance. I hate to call it universal health care. You know saying. that yeah. because they don't get care if you have to wait six months to get right. in to see the doctor. But midwives are much more included into the system. Yes. Um, kind of like it is in England. They're part of they're part of the system or in Europe. Um, and uh, so she was saying that it's mandatory for them to do five hospital births and five home births every year. Like they they have to diversify how they care for people. But she's amazing and has so much uh, wisdom and experience. Um, and she was talking about how fear and because she's trying to get more people to do breach in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And um, there's so much fear around it. So a lot of what she is kind of delving into, which I've talked about that too, like how I'll sit in the shower and try and think about like, how do you get people to like, take that leap of faith and feel comfortable with, you know, changing their perspective about community-based birthing versus hospital birthing. Um, why, why are you doing that in the shower? <laughs> I think about it all the time. I think, I think every, that, if there's any, any men who are listening right now, they were thinking, Oh, Beth, that's what she's doing in the shower. That's what I'm doing in the shower is thinking about birth. Cause what did you call it? Birth hungry nerds. That's what we are. Yeah. Birth hungry nerds. Birth hungry nerds. Right. <laughs> so you had a definition about phobia. Oh yeah, because well, it's just was, a, it's just, it, is the, it is the definition of phobia. Well, because she mentioned um, that it w actually is a phobia, not not just fear. It's a phobia, and so we looked it up. Yeah, fear is different. Um, phobia is actually a persistent, abnormal, and irrational fear of a specific thing or situation that compels one to avoid it despite the awareness and reassurance that it is not that dangerous. Right. So it's irrational. It's that That's a key, key word that mm -hmm. is irrational mm -hmm. and it's persistent. And it's, and it, again, and it's abnormal. So like a fear of spiders is a, is a phobia really. Mm -hmm. now, even if you were bitten by a spider once, do you really have to go through your life being fearful of spiders? Mm -hmm. Terrified. Not, not, not just fear. <laughs> Sky was terrified. Yeah. Even Daddy it's Long. Not, it's not. So that, so that's because fear has benefit to drive us to do things that are appropriate to help save us. Mm -hmm. Phobias are paralyzing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they're stopping the advancement in our field. Yeah. Another definition: any morbid, uncontrollable dread of fear or fear. So yeah, it's beyond fear. It's it's paralyzing irrational fear and, and that so she used that in terms of how our colleagues think about breach is that what she was mm -hmm. talking about yeah. yeah yeah um and she said fear is often disguised as moral outrage right which i thought was also very interesting yeah it's a form of cognitive dissonance it's mm -hmm. a form of i can't face the fact that i have this fear so those people that are causing me to have this fear need to be discredited or yelled at or screamed at or or they're just they're they're outrageous so i'm mm -hmm. going to it's their fault mm -hmm. that's 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 one of the coping mechanisms for cognitive dissonance yeah right 
And she was talking about, you know, like in a, in a society, like, let's say like, let's go back to like a village or, or a smaller society, like as societies grow larger, the way that we control how things are managed. So things don't get out of control changes. Right. And so she was talking about like in, in society before it was the alpha males who kind of dictated how things went and made sure that things stayed right in control. I remember this part of the talk. Yeah. And, and she said, but now it's now it's more in enforced morals. Correct. We've, we've castrated the uh, alpha males. It, it was a very, you know, she didn't get that deep into it and <laughs> I can't explain it well I'll, at I'll all, but it's very, it was, it was actually very fascinating to think about. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that is better. It's just recognizing the shift in how we are doing things now that also has problems. It's, it's, it's self and community control being given by an alpha male or, or a group of elders being given over to a faceless, nameless hierarchy. Mm -hmm whether it be, you know, your local government, your state government, federal government, global elites. Well, morals also could come from church, which happened a lot of times. That That's how things yeah, were, and were that's Well, and again, when you look at how the, Marx wrote his thesis, he, he, talk, he talked about that the uh, religion is the opiate of the masses. And so they, mm -hmm. in order to get the people to be on your side, in a revolution, you have to get rid of family. You have to get rid of the church. You have to get rid of the the old moral foundation. Mm -hmm. So, is that what she was sort of talking about? She was just talking about just trying to understand what motivates people. And if you go back to the COVID situation, enforced morals, you know that is a big part of actually what happened as well. Because if you were a good, decent human, you would want to get take care of everyone right and so it's just it's just an interesting thing to kind of chew on i don't think we're going to get to the bottom of right it, but it's well, something that she brought up uh, and i thought it was fascinating but we wanted to take care of everyone by telling them not to get vaccinated and, <laughs> and stop wearing masks and get outside <laughs> and take some vitamin d that's and right. exercise and put your feet in the grass yeah and uh you know get dirty and stop purelling stop purelling right she also said 50 percent of uh, the births, uh, breach births that she attended in the hospital or that she attended didn't need maneuvers. And I thought 50% was a, was a uh, very, I thought it would have been much higher than that, that didn't need maneuvers. Well, again, we don't know what the situations are in the hospital setting. Are they epiduralized? Are they uh, in lithotomy position? Mm -hmm. Are they uh, on Pitocin? Are they, you know, or is it fear that's motivating it? Or fear, correct. But yeah. we, so again, a, a number thrown out like that seems low. No, it seems high. No, it seems like didn't need, fifth, didn't need maneuvers. You, you think it should be higher? Yeah, sorry, right? you're it right. seems low, right? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> um, but you don't know the circumstances. That's why. That's why comparing studies like the term breach trial, which took I had twenty six centers. I think, or 26 countries, 122 centers in 26 countries. There was no standardization of how things were done. That's why, I pay, you know, that, and, and you're never going to have a big enough sample from any one institution to ever make that matter. 
That's why getting our Rick's and my papers out there, even though, as I said before, the numbers are not going to reach statistical significance. You're not going to be able to draw conclusions from it. It's now out in the, it'll be out in the world literature and people can't say that it's not safe. Mm-hmm. They can't necessarily say it's safe because you can't say either because there isn't data to support either. This is what Shavira's talk was about. So right, right. We'll get him on. We, we will. We'll get him on. We will because right. he, I can't say I couldn't even begin to tell you what he talked about. Yeah. <laughs> you might be able to. Yeah, I just was like. Right over your head. I know this is good, but I'm not going to try and give you a synopsis yeah. on that one for sure. So another really interesting thing, and this is going to be the last thing I say about Betty Ann, um, is she talked about the childbirth connection. So look it up. She said that they have a document, um, 33 reasons why C-sections are dangerous. I've seen that. Yeah. So I haven't. And I think that that could be a good resource. So it, those of you who are educating uh, families and stuff like that, or just want that information yourself, that sounds like it's a really great resource. All right. One of the things that Gail Tully said, one of the like little wisdoms I loved is she said, you're going through this gate from accidentally attending breach to intentionally attending breach. Mm-hmm. Which is true. That. You breach, know, at breach some point, skills should not. Yeah, they should make not make a decision. Yeah, breach skills should not be taught as an emergency procedure. Breach should be taught as a normal core skill. It just should. Yeah. Because when you teach something as an emergency procedure, the incidence of that something being used goes down, like sh- shoulder dystocia. It's something to avoid because it's an emergency procedure. It's a psychological thing. Yeah. Is and it? and and families who have. Uh, a baby in the breech position deserve to have options. And if nobody's trained. And this is why I give so much credit to the, uh, the people that run the program and all the doctors, uh, attendings and residents at Northwestern university, because as I said, in the previous podcast, I think it was so enlightening to, and and uplifting to see the enthusiasm that they had for learning breech delivery Mm -hmm. at this, at the university. I was just fortunate that they had such a, sign, a large sign up that Breach Without Borders needed an extra pair of hands. Yeah. Because otherwise, it, it would, I wouldn't have gotten to go. So the, for me, that was a, a another little minor sentinel moment saying that maybe, maybe there's hope. Maybe. There's always hope. There's, there's always hope. hope. Aragorn said that. <laughs> so one of the things I didn't tell you yet, I'm not going to actually be able to do it because I already have clients, but um, David Hayes invited me to be on a team of providers that we're going to support um triplets oh right and i in tennessee i think i don't remember where it was it didn't matter because i couldn't right. come but i felt so honored that he asked if i could and i gosh if i could split myself into two and and be in two different places when does she do um it is in like january so probably december then or maybe he was maybe it's february oh, maybe he was so, saying. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> i don't know but that was pretty amazing. Um, so that I that I, that way back when, when I was still a hospital based physician, but I was beginning my evolution. Um, but I, I did vaginal triplets at uh, Cedars. Yeah, and I've been like, you had a dream years ago. Oh yeah, when yeah. we first started doing the podcast that you did triplets at home, and I'm like, yes, yeah, someday. I hope so. Someday when I when I'm like, you know, absolutely certainly got nothing to lose. I, I'll I'll do that. <laughs> no. I, I I think if you the right client in the right situation, it's just a baby and then another baby and then another, another baby. baby. Right. So right. And there's nothing that that if everything's going smoothly that we can't do at home. 
And if things aren't going smoothly and you're not messing with mother nature too much, you generally aren't going to have a sudden rapid deterioration of status. But I understand why people are, are nervous about that, partly because most triplets, even if you leave, well, they're never left alone in the medical model, but they, they'll deliver slightly early. But the triplets I had went to almost 37 and a half, 38 weeks. That's not bad. Right. Yeah. Um, it just, it just, the volume of their uterus is yeah, so big. It can only go so far. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she was impressed. She was one of the tiniest women I know, and you just turned her sideways. <laughs> she looked like a, a a pencil from behind. You turned her sideways. She looked like a like a a, a bassoon or something like that. You know, just just big things sticking out in front of her. Yeah. Our bodies are amazing. They are right? amazing. I mean, yeah. come on. So, um, wrapping it up, one of the things. Congratulations on being asked, though. Thank you. That's really cool because that, that that means he thinks very highly. Thank of you. you. Right. You know, when I did, we had the the uh, stations where you do the maneuvers and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I had done one um, with uh, Rixa and Betty Ann. I didn't specifically didn't go learn from you because I've learned a lot from you, but I also thought you could pull it. Well, out. who needs lithotomy position anyway? No, I really do want you to pull it out. <laughs> Sophie and her mom. And I wanted, I want to do it with you before we, we leave each other. But, um, uh, she, so I did the maneuvers with him and he said, You've done this before, haven't you? And I was like, only one other time over there. Yeah, but you've you've seen <laughs> oh so many a lot, and right. and talked about it so much. Right. Um. So uh, Nathan said, if someone deviates from nature, it should be up to them to prove that it's okay. Right. And he talked about carrying around a massive briefcase when he was in his residency to to um justify the fact that he didn't want to step in on certain things. And I think that that is something culturally that I really wish that we would adopt, not the other way around that we have all of these medicines and all of these procedures and all of these treatments. And it's up to us to prove to them that herbs or hands off or physiologic birth or not cutting the cord and all of these things that are just based on nature that we should have to pay for a study to be done, but they should have to pay to figure out why we should deviate from nature. I really liked that. Yeah. I, I can't find it right now, but I had a, um, a thing that said the same thing that, that the burden of proof should be on the intervention working, not on proving not on later, later proving that doesn't work or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yes. Well, you said something about, it's like asking a fireman to start a fire and then, and then calling them to put it out. Well, that's a little bit different, but yes, that is classically stage one thinking, mm -hmm. or or it or just just what what doctors do is they cause problems, and then they are called in to solve the problem, and then you're supposed to be grateful that they solve the right. problem. Right. You know the classic example, and people probably don't remember this, but in 2008 or nine, when the banking system collapsed, the people that were were forcing banks to give loans to people who couldn't afford the loans because they thought it was unfair that people should have to qualify for a loan, which is like just common sense and it's been around forever. Um, that doesn't make it right. Were, were Barney Frank and Chris Dodd, two mm -hmm. congressmen at the time. And then the banks collapsed and then uh, they had to bail them out. I mean, there was a whole big bailout with, Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers went under, I think, and all this stuff. And everybody might remember that in 2009. And then they, the government said, okay, well, we're going to come in and we're going to redo it. We're going to fix this problem and stuff like that. And then who did they put in charge of that project? Hmm. 
Barney Frank and Chris Dodd, <laughs> same two guys who were in charge of the things that caused it to fall apart in the first place. This is this is how big systems work. And I think I asked one time, somebody raised their hand, Betty Ann raised her hand, but her example wasn't correct. But I said, can anybody in the audience tell me something that as it's gotten bigger has gotten better? Mm-hmm. And there was no, no there was no response. Mm-hmm. I mean, Betty's was no, sort of a non sequitur response about legislation that made her able to do the things. But that's not getting bigger. That's getting something to work that's already there. But as governments get bigger, as health systems get bigger, um, you're, you're not going to get better health care. Just not. Yeah. You're not going to get better attention from an HMO. A large group of doctors will never give you the same care that a single doctor or a single okay. midwife will give you. Yeah. Just won't happen. So um, one of the last kind of uh, things that I think they talked about a lot that I, I just wanted to go over in terms of breaches is once the body is out and it's just the head, yep. that because the head is really not going to be able to benefit from the power from the of uterus. the uterus, right? So you don't, ne- this is one of those times that you'd want to step in. You don't necessarily want to wait for the next contraction. Not even necessarily. You don't that, wait for the next yeah, contraction. Yeah. Yeah. Waiting for the next contraction is is useless. Yeah. Because there's nothing in the uterus anymore. Right. Right. You could give fundal pressure, which might push the uterus against the head, but to wait for if a baby's there and you're waiting for a contraction to come, it's that it, sometimes it doesn't come because yeah. the uterus realizes there's it's oh, empty. Well, except for the placenta, it's yeah. empty. Yeah. And so it's not ready to detach the placenta yet. So there's no no reason to contract. Right. And so you just sit there, and that's a lot of time wasted. We didn't get to watch a lot of videos about that, but I have several in my reteach breach course where we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. These are submitted to us for with with grace and dignity to let us show for teaching mm-hmm. where they're waiting way too long. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So that was a good, that you was got, a good You got to remember too. that the uterus is only useful when something's in it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. You know, uh, when a baby's got a shoulder, well, Sosha. For this, for this topic. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, that's right. For this topic. I don't yeah. know you, where you went with that one. <laughs> well, I mean, the uterus has, it has, it doesn't have to have yeah, something okay, in okay, it to right. be useful. That's right. all I'm well, saying. Yeah, okay. I, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. So I was just going to say, what was I going to say? Oh, a shoulder dystocia. Um, part of the baby's still in the uterus. So contractions are used, or, or not even, when the head is out. You know, Like a lot of times, not even a shoulder dystocia. That's a bad example. When the head is out, like underwater or something like that, and it's just sitting there. And I've, I've watched midwives then wait for the next contraction. Mm-hmm. I I like to get the head out, but... Mm-hmm. that's my medical training. And so I just take my hands and I sit on them mm-hmm. and then the next contraction comes and then the mother pushes and then the shoulder will come out. So because the baby's still inside, but with breaches, that's not the same thing. Right. There's nothing left inside. Right. The body's out here. Right, 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 right. Okay. So anyway, I hope that was interesting. It was kind of fun for me to review and go back over because we weren't necessarily talking and sitting next to each it, other about this. It's so. always, it's always good to rehash this stuff and rehash this stuff and rehash this stuff. and. Even though if, if there's a conference next year, a lot of it will be the same stuff. It's still great to go over it because you don't get a lot of exposure to breach and twin information. But also, again, what what's bigger than all of that was the community yeah. and the people that were there. And we're lucky, Bliss, because we, we have a lot lucky. of fellow travelers who who admire what we're doing and we we give make their day. 
and they love when we say good middle of the night because they're driving to a birth and they listen to us. And so, you know, we were sort of like celebrities there, which was a lot of fun for us. But I, I'm very humble when it comes to that sort of thing. And I, I feel very appreciative of the fact that, that you guys trust us because that's all we have right now is our integrity. And we, the information that we put on the podcast is what we, what we truly believe. And it's what we think is the most commonsensical, moral and evidence-based information. We try to mix it in with a little bit of our humor, but you guys at that conference were so great. Uh, I hope next year that we have 500 people who want to come uh, because this skill needs the skill of breaching twins has to get out there. It has to. And doctors who don't want to do it are not really obstetricians and they need to be felt. I, I say this with sincerity. They need to be made to feel uncomfortable. They need to be challenged to be asked why they need to be presented with data, paper, whatever. To ask them why they don't do it. And if you especially have twins, it gets back to that point, and your doctor is not comfortable with a, a breach second twin or a breach first twin, then that doctor should not be taking care of you, period. Okay. Okay. So I think we're going to go and see the Grand Ole Opry and walk around and have a good time here in Nashville, Tennessee. I guess we are. <laughs> so yeah, we should we leave at the crack of dawn tomorrow. So that, that's it. We're, <laughs> We're flying out. This is our last day. Mine, you off. You're off to Mexico. I'm going back to the homestead for six days before I then head to South Carolina and do the do it do it all over again. <laughs> so there's a big big shindig in South Carolina. I'm not exactly sure about what it's called. I know what it's called. I just can't remember right now. But it's in Rock Hill, South Carolina. It should be a blast. Yeah. So that's on the 24th, 25th, 26th, and 27th of. August. Well, it's been great to be together. We don't often get to record podcasts together. So this has been a great time. We hope that you enjoy this episode. Um, please make sure and go on your podcast um, app and uh, review us because it really does help other people find us. And that is the mission of this podcast is to get it out common sense information yeah. about birth and people. So give give not only just give five stars, but also write a write a review. Is yes. what you're saying? Yeah, right. absolutely. And support oh, our sponsors. So have a great day. We love you. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 